It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. At Aldi today, there are bonkers offers on the way. Install now until the 30th of November. Celebrations tubs and quality street tubs was $4.49, now only $3.99 each. Better whiz whoosh down to Aldi, the which cheapest supermarket of the year. Aldi, share the love this Christmas. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and of course we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, 30 more Palestinian prisoners have been released by Israel, including 15 minors and 15 children on top of the 12 hostages that have arrived in Israeli territory on the fifth day of the ceasefire. I mean, Scobie's new book about Harry and Meghan is withdrawn from shelves in the Netherlands over a translation error and the Metropolitan Police Commissioner says his officers would rather face terrorists than gangsters over fears of a legal backlash. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I've got one message tonight, and it's a message for that ghastly couple in California. Those two self-obsessed and completely self-absorbed multi-millionaires who fly everywhere on private jets and they tell the rest of us to be kind to them because they've suffered so much. The Duke and Duchess of Netflix have amused us, disappointed us, betrayed us, and ultimately laughed at our kindness when they first met and then married. Now, though, I think enough is enough. I've been steadfast in my support for the royal family. It is an institution that makes Britain better and not worse. And after the death of Queen Elizabeth, it's clear that the family is in pretty good hands for at least the next two generations after this. But the publication of this latest load of old cobblers from odious Scobie is a slap in the face, not just to King Charles, Queen Camilla and the rest of the family. It is a slap in the face to this great nation of ours. In Act 1 of Shakespeare's King Lear, the monarch says this about his daughter Goneril. How sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. He likens the pain she causes him to a snake bite. How must Harry's behaviour pain his father? And what about Meghan? The only contact she appears to have with her sister is in court. And she still hasn't bothered to introduce her father to her husband or their children. Odious Scobie is doing this graceless pair no favours whatsoever, but his ramblings are doing more damage to the royal brand in America. Only tonight we learn that the book has been pulled in the Netherlands because an early review copy appears to name the person Harry first claimed was racist about their baby. If it turns out that that's what's actually happened, Scobie will have kiboshed his own golden goose. We can only hope it's true. Meanwhile, we've got Michael Gove, the Minister for Absolutely Anything You Can Think Of, apologising for the way the government handled COVID. Sorry, Mr Gove, we're not buying it. You just can't lock people up, ruin the economy, wreck the NHS, then turn around and say, sorry, we made a mistake. For God's sake, man, if you're really sorry, then resign and be done with it. This government can't stagger on much longer, can it? 
This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. And don't forget, you can get in touch with the show and me on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones. We'll be taking lots of calls tonight, 0344 499 That call will cost you the national rate. And we've got lots to talk about tonight. More hostages released uh, from Gaza back to Israel. Uh, the Israelis now releasing some Palestinian prisoners as well. We'll find out what they call the difference between minors and children. Uh, and we'll talk about, of course, the COVID inquiry and the dreaded Harry and Meghan to discuss all of this. First up, I'm joined by Deputy Common Editor of the Daily Telegraph. It is, of course, Annabelle Denham. Annabelle, very good uh, to see you. Welcome. Good evening. Thank you very much for joining us. I mean, we'll know a bit more uh, specifically about the, the hostage releases a little bit later on in the show, and we'll, we'll, we'll bring that up because I want to talk to you in some detail about that because some of the things we've seen in the last few days, the kids being reunited with their parents, some of the children still not being released, is just horrendous. Um, but I'd like to kick us off, actually, with, with just Harry and Meghan and this damn book that's come out. Omid Scobie, whose last book turned out to be sort of more or less as dictated to by Harry and Meghan, he's now claiming this one has got nothing to do with them, but they just pulled it from the shelves of the Netherlands um, because apparently an early translation version went out in which apparently the individual that, uh, that Harry says made some kind of racist remark has actually been named by accident. Well, the couple have just been surrounded with controversy yeah. for years now. I quite like the idea that it's been pulled from the shelves. You have to wonder whether it was really flying off the shelves to yeah. begin with. Were people in the Netherlands curing around the corner of their local... Well, it doesn't strike me as a major place of uh, interest in the royal family or Harry and Meghan, really. No, not, not especially, although I think globally interest in Harry and Meghan seems to be on the decline. I think and so. at the same time, the monarchy is in rude health. It's yeah. proving itself, uh, you know, to be very robust in the face of these challenges. Charles has had, I think, a better first year than I most people so. were expecting. Yeah. William and Kate are very popular. They're doing a lot of work around um, mental health, yeah. but the Earthshot Prize. You know, at the moment, it feels as though the members of the working world family are struggling to put a foot wrong. And yeah. I imagine that irks Harry and Meghan. Oh, I'm sure it does. And, and we, keep, no, we keep seeing these suggestions that, oh, well, maybe they'll move back to Los Angeles or maybe he'll move back to Britain or, you know, we may, we may have new projects to talk about. And they look increasingly desperate, it seems to me. And for him to do a book, which is very nice to, to Harry and Meghan and not very nice to, to William and Kate, to suggest that the only thing she's good for is posing for pictures. Well, it's pretty rich coming from uh, the house of Montecito, isn't it? Yes, it sure is. And there's only so much airing of the dirty laundry you think that Harry and Meghan will be able to do. How long can they continue mm. to live off criticisms that they're making, allegations that they're making against right. the royal family? And of course, their star is fading in America as well. It turns out that the public across the Atlantic are beginning to tire of Harry yeah. and Meghan. Well, there's nothing worse than a multi-millionaire with a 30 million pound trust fund saying how badly done by he is and how dreadful his life is. I mean, people are going, sorry? Is that you're on another private jet? Is that another Range Rover waiting for you to pick you up? And is that another uh, valet that's bringing your polo outfit with you? Well, it definitely feels very out of touch. <laughs> and of course, they haven't hesitated to proselytise to the rest of us mm. about how we ought to live our lives, how many no. children we should be having, yes. and how many flights we should be taking in order to protect the planet. But then, of course, they had no qualms in taking private jets no. themselves, uh, like Elton John's down to the south of France. Right. So there's a, a, bit, a bit of hypocrisy, hypocrisy from is Harry and Meghan, as well as being so out of touch, yeah. you know, making these remarks during a cost of living crisis. Yeah, exactly right. Let's have a look at um, um, Michael Gove today. He appeared at the COVID inquiry. We've got Matt Hancock coming up a little bit later on. And Michael Gove um, made an apology of sorts. I think we can see that. 
Oh, no, we don't have it. Um, he made an apology. Oh, no, we do have it. Well, did we have it? We don't have it. We have it. Here I we want go. to take this opportunity, oh, if sorry. I may, my lady, to apologise to uh, the victims uh, who endured um, uh, so much pain, the families who endured so much loss as a result of the mistakes that were made by government in response to the pandemic. And as a minister responsible for the Cabinet Office, and who was also close to many of the decisions that were made, I must take my share of responsibility for that. Yes, my lady, I'd like to apologise. I'd like to apologise for that mix-up there just before we played the uh, thing. But let's face it, it wasn't quite as deleterious to the, to the entire nation as uh, Michael Gove and what they did inside the Cabinet Office. I mean, I don't like this kind of, uh, this new political way out where you just say, say I'm really sorry. Um, but you don't actually resign, you don't actually take any responsibility, really. You just say, oh, well, we sort of screwed up there. No, not really absolving him of any no. responsibility. And it's a bit weak, isn't it, isn't it? As an effort at atonement. But also, if he's going to apologise, by all means apologise to the victims, apologise to the bereaved. But what about the rest of us, Mike? Yeah. What about all of us who were shut in our homes, the right. children who were deprived of their education, exactly. uh, the businesses that were forced to close, some of which never reopened people's livelihoods? were being impacted. What about the seven and a half-ish million people yeah. who are on the NHS waiting list because it became a COVID service mm. rather than a national health service during the pandemic? There yeah. are many, many apologies that need to be made, but unfortunately, this inquiry doesn't really seem all that interested in asking important questions around whether lockdown was the right measure, no. whether the cure was actually worse than the disease. Really, it's set or appears to be set on proving that lockdown should have come in sooner, mm. and it should have been harder, and it should have lasted for longer. And it's also, you know, it's set on trying to blame the government, those in government, for the role that they played in those delays, in the mistakes that were made, you know, in decision making mm. early on in the pandemic. And if that's the case, you have to ask what the point in this very yeah. long, drawn out and expensive well, inquiry expensive. really is. It won't surprise you to know that yesterday I got to the point where I just thought, enough is enough, let's just call a halt to it, save ourselves 100 million quid, give that money to the families that uh, that suffered the most, if you say that they were victims because of the government policy, let Michael go give them that money and let's just be, be done with it because it's coming out with nothing really nearer of the truth than, 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 we ever, than we ever knew. I mean, everybody knows that it was screwed up, everybody knows that nobody's prepared, um, you know, and everybody knows that Dominic Cummings thinks everybody else is a bastard. You know, we've done all that. So, you know, let's move on. Let's move on now actually to talk about Rwanda, because I want to talk to Tom Hunt, uh, MP. Rwanda has been in the news since a couple of weeks ago, um, and probably a year or so before that, uh, when the uh, Supreme Court ruled that, in fact, we can't send anybody to Rwanda, and then even if we can send anybody, it won't be very many people. But Tom, uh, I have to say, is a member of the Common Sense Group, and he has actually said something rather interesting uh, on Twitter this week. He actually said that it is incumbent on mainstream parties to urgently address the situation around migration. He believes it's become a national emergency. Tom, um, very good evening to you. Thanks for joining us. Um, I just want to uh, congratulate you on actually saying what an awful lot of other people think because MPs tend to say things, in my experience, particularly those in government at the moment, oh yeah, we're going to attach this, we're going to uh, definitely try and stop the boats or we're going to stop the boats, but they're not saying what most people are saying, which is this is a massive problem and we need to solve it. Well, of course, <clears throat> this isn't just about illegal migration. No. I mean, clearly, illegal migration is a vital issue. Um, you know, the last couple of weeks I've attended a, num a number of meetings about illegal migration and in particular the Rwanda 
um, scheme. Um, but we've also last week, I mean, I think we had some pretty shocking stats published, ONS stats in relation to net legal migration. Mm. You know, the last general election, you know, I stood a manifesto. At the time, net migration was at around 220,000. We pledged to cut it from that number. What's happened since then has been last year we had figures of um, over 700,000. This year, 660,000 or thereabouts. You know, and it's it's far too high. And I think that we have a massive disconnect between where most of the public are at when it comes to migration, the kind of level they think it should be at, and the reality. And just year after year. You know, we keep on getting more ludicrous stats um, and with the knock-on pressures on housing, social cohesion. Uh, and I think you can see all over the world, and particularly in the Netherlands, other, other examples of what happens when mainstream parties don't grapple with migration as an issue. This is an existential challenge this poses to the Conservative Party. If we don't react robustly to those stats that were published last weekend, also when it comes to the small boats, there is a huge threat um, to the future of the Conservative Party, a greater threat than at any point that I've known in my lifetime. Because it seems to be split at the moment, it seems to me, where you've got some people in the Conservative Party who are all for kind of unbridled um, um, immigration, no regulations really whatsoever, as long as you're giving out visas, that's fine. But it seems to me that uh, people like yourself are saying, look, you know, it's not a bottomless pit. We haven't got the space, frankly. We haven't got the uh, infrastructure. We haven't really got the jobs. And we learned this week, for example, that an awful lot of the jobs that are being offered on certain visa schemes are being offered at a knockdown price. On the government's own website, they say you can offer 80% of the money to an immigrant that you would otherwise be paying to somebody uh, who was actually living here already. I mean, it's it's high time. The problem is the Treasury have great influence when it comes to this debate. Uh, they're, they're only interested about GDP. Uh, and they, they, they feel as though having net migration at these unprecedented levels is a good thing in that regard. I mean, I think we need to see the whole issue in the round. I think we need to see the whole picture. And that means looking at GDP per capita, the negative impact the net migration is um, big at huge levels has had on that. It means looking at the impact it has on access to public services, housing on so many different levels i believe that immigration is working against the interests of the british people uh, and i think you know they've had enough i've had enough you are right there are some colleagues of mine who don't place as much importance on it as i do and i and that that, that does worry me um you know but i, I really think it's important we discuss legal migration and not just illegal migration and oh, no, so when no, it comes I... to this emergency legislation with regards to rwanda and the illegal migration it really needs to be a full fat option. It needs to go as far as it needs to go. There is no point saying we will do whatever it takes if you don't actually mean that. No. You know, and, and my view is it's for, it's for our sovereign parliament to decide what to do in this matter. And I think, you know, the sovereignty of our parliament, our national sovereignty must override, um, you know, international, um, conventions and et cetera. And we, we need to derogate from, um, certainly, I think the ECHR, Refugee Convention, and HRA when it comes to the Rwanda scheme. You know, I, 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 I you know, I must say, I'm, I'm a member of Parliament. I listen to my constituents, and that's that's one of the reasons why I've been so engaged on this issue. But I'm also myself a citizen of this country, and I am hugely concerned about the the effects of migration at these levels and, and, it, and what it will have on our country. Hugely concerned, yeah. and I have to say, some of the marches, etc., we've seen over the last few months 
have heightened my concerns yeah. about some of the implications no, of mass migration, lack of integration. There's no question that that has made a lot of people sit up and, and take notice. Annabelle Dern is with me from Telegraph. Annabelle, can we put to bed this notion that the Treasury seems to be putting about that, you know, oh, migration's good for the GDP, it's good for the economy? Because what we've discovered with these latest um, legal migration figures is that there's an awful lot more people coming as dependents on work visas and on student visas than there are people actually coming to fulfil those posts. Yes, that's right. As Tom has underscored, the economic case for immigration, certainly immigration at these levels, is collapsing. There have been studies previously into, say, the number of uh, foreign-born founders of the UK's fastest-growing companies, mm. and that used to be close to around half of the, the fastest, most ambitious firms, but yeah. now it's dropped down to 39%. If you look like Tom has underscored at GDP per capita, that's actually going down, mm. even if this massive influx of immigrants or people moving to the UK is leading to higher GDP overall. It's actually causing a decline in living standards. Of course, there's also the investment that we need in infrastructure. It's our inability to build anything, railways, hospitals, roads, schools. Um, the, you know, this is going to mean that people feel the impact of very high levels of immigration on a day-to-day -day basis and it's very problematic for the Conservative Party yeah. because you, when the public has been asked about this at general elections when they've been promised it will be reduced down to the tens of thousands in the Brexit referendum that many people saw as an opportunity to take back control of our borders the public has made it quite clear that they're not comfortable yeah. with high levels of immigration and yet successive Conservative governments have failed to bring it down. Yeah, exactly. So I mean where do you think it sort of went wrong because I talk about this obviously an awful lot. You and I have spent many, many a, uh, an hour, no doubt, on uh, uh, over the years talking on Talk Radio, now Talk TV, about the problem with migration. Uh, we saw it coming on, uh, on, on um, you know, trucks and, and lorries and coaches and things coming across the Channel Tunnel. We saw it on ferries. Now we see it on small boats. But we also see that the Conservative Party over time has kind of allowed this number to increase. Even in 2019, it was only 200,000 uh, net migration. And at that point, um, having been elected, Boris Johnson vowed to bring it, bring it down, but he never did. And now it's just gone up and up and up and up. And it's no longer just about Ukraine and Hong Kong. It's literally there for the duration of the next few years. Well, I, I think it's, I think, you know, with Brexit, um, I think that a lot of people came to the view that, oh, it's, it's all about control of immigration. It's not about the numbers. Well, it is about control, but no, it is partly, well, they're very, to a very large extent, about the numbers. Mm. Um, and certainly on legal migration, I don't think that the pennies drop for many people. But you, you're right, um, you're right. I have been on this show many times. I've spent the last, you know, I remember the first time I mentioned the small boats was, was sort of, I think it was in 2020. I mean, yeah. I've, been, I've been going on about this issue for over three well, years. I mean, we've just been talking yeah. about COVID there. I mean, during COVID, the only way you could get anywhere um, around the world because of all the frozen flights was on a boat from the, 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 uh, the Normandy coast to Britain. You know, I couldn't go and see my mother in America, um, but they could come here and it was no problem. But it's all coming home. Everything's coming home to roost at the moment. The next few weeks are going to be pivotal. So I have been talking about it for the last three years or so, but the next few weeks are going to be absolutely pivotal. Uh, and I will be speaking my mind incredibly directly about this issue and what I believe is in the best interest of my constituents. The sole thing I'm interested in is what does this, all of this mean for my constituents and their quality of life? And in many respects, it has a negative impact 
on their quality of life. You know, and I, I think in so many different, you know, we need to significantly increase the salary threshold for coming over here. We need to look at the dependents and also why are we propping up the finances of many, you know, second, third rate universities? Um, but that don't produce graduates with the skills we need. You know, when we talk about international students, some people have got it into their head that, oh, these are all, you know, the world, the Nobel Prize winners splitting, you know, splitting the atom at Grant <laughs> Park in Cambridge. They're not. You know, the vast majority of them are at sort of, you know, questionable universities doing courses with that little benefit. I mean, of course, they bring a dependence over with them as well. Um, so look, this is, this is, I'm, I am beyond, I mean, I didn't even do any media last week because I think I was so angry. I didn't even do any media. I've calmed down. Well, I haven't really calmed down. I'm still pretty angry. No, don't calm down. Tell. We don't want you calm. You know, well, I'm not going to calm down. I, I was, you, you would have seen that I was in my House of Commons chamber earlier. Uh, and I, I asked, you know, I asked, I was very, it was probably the most, you know, robust question I've ever delivered, um, you know, to the government since I've been elected. Um, and I, I mean, that was earlier today. There's a lot of colleagues that feel the same way. Uh, and, you know, I, and I think that some of those, you know, people in the past, you know, if you if you think, oh, you know, if you're intensely relaxed with net migration being in the hundreds of thousands, you're a massive globalist and you benefit from driving down wages or, you know, you're, you're on the woke left. What, you know, take that case to the British public because, you know what, you'd be lucky if you got... 5% of the population supporting net migration at its present levels. Yeah. You know, we cannot shut the British public out of the debate on migration anymore. It is astonishing that we're still in this position. Brexit was an opportunity. Whenever the public get an opportunity, whether it's a Brexit, the 2019 referendum, they say, please lower migration. Yeah. And they keep on being ignored. This cannot go on anymore. No. And, and that would be what is guiding me. It's, and, and the public are rightly connecting migration as an issue with other issues, access to GP appointments, yeah. getting their kids into their primary school, um, um, of choice. So many different things. Um, you know, and, and so much about our country is being undermined and eroded by mass migration. It yeah. is being eroded. Um, and, and my real got... concern is that a combination of mass migration and frankly some of the stuff going in our education system will mean that in, in 15, 20 years time, you know, we would have totally lost our way as a country and it might even be irreversible to get yeah. ourselves back on track. Yeah. It is not hyperbole for me to say that. I think it is reasonable for me to say that. Um, and, you know, if anyone thinks I've been outspoken on this issue over the last three years, look at the next three weeks and I'm going to get more outspoken on okay. it. Um, Tom, I, I feel well, very listen, strongly well, about it. Well, we look forward to getting you back on this show because this is where you can be as outspoken as you want. Nobody's going to stop you doing it and you're talking uh, an awful lot of sense, as we would expect. Tom, good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Tom Hunt, uh, fighting the good fight because somebody needs to do it. Annabelle Denham's going to stay with us. Uh, we've got more to talk about. We're going to go over to Israel as well and get the latest uh, on the release of hostages and the release of prisoners uh, from the other side as well. You're watching uh, The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. 30 more Palestinian prisoners have been released uh, by Israel, including 15 women and 15 minors, according to Qatar. This comes as 12 hostages, including 10 Israelis and two Thai nationals, arrived in Israeli territory on the fifth day of the ceasefire. Joining me now from Tel Aviv is Talk TV's war correspondent, Tom Much. Tom, um, a very, very good uh, evening to you. Thanks very much for joining us. I think you've been on um, pretty much every show uh, today. So um, it's been a very, very busy day. Lots of different things happening. I understand you've just been in a meeting uh, with the Israelis. Um, tell us what you can tell us. So I was in, in a meeting with a senior IDF spokesperson who basically talked to me at length 
about what's going to happen after the truth. And he was fairly candid and fairly open, and he said something along the lines of, what happened to Gaza City could very well happen to Khan Yunus and Rafa and the places in the south where most of the Palestinians from Gaza City moved during the original Israeli bombardment. That said, there were there will be extraordinary damage to them, to their infrastructure. And so while everybody here is very, very happy that a lot of hostages have been released, they are still very much gearing up to go back to war here. And the IDF seems almost like it's chomping at the bit to get back at Yes, and I've heard some of your early reports today saying that it's been quite unusual um, from, from the last few days to not have rockets firing over your head constantly, um, and it does seem to have actually held the truce as such, but it's all over tomorrow. Uh, is there likely to be an extension, do you think? So apparently, according to our sources, Qatari and Egyptian mediators are pushing as hard as they can to add another couple of days onto the ceasefire. It has, there's a clause in the original ceasefire that it can go on for up to 10 days. Every extra day, another 10 hostages will be released from Hamas captivity. Another 30 Palestinian prisoners will be let free from Israeli jails. Now, it is in Hamas's interest to try and do that because one thing that is happening that's quite interesting is that for all of the prisoners that, that, that get released, their popularity in the West Bank, where they don't, which they don't currently control, actually increases. However, that said, if the IDF have their say, they will be effectively eradicated altogether, where it's yet to be seen and will probably emerge over the coming weeks as to whether they'll be able to do that or not. Because one of the running stories at the moment as well has been, despite all the children that have been released, the 10-month-old the, the baby, uh, Kafir, I think uh, his name is, um, is basically uh, still uh, being held. They don't say they're holding him anymore. Hamas say they're not sure who's holding him, but it may be some other group. Could be a Palestinian jihad, could be some other sort of fringe organisation. They're not sure where he is. Um, and so that could be the case, I presume, with a lot of the hostages. Yeah, it's a fairly dreadful situation. I believe a Hamas spokesperson said it was around 40 that were unaccounted for in Hamas captivity and that effectively, if they were to find them, they would need more time than the truce or the ceasefire to go looking for them and effectively take, you know, a proper look throughout Gaza, contact the other radical uh, terror organizations within Gaza and find out where those prisoners are being held. However, whether they can do that in the next couple of days really remains to be seen. And it does remain to be seen also whether the parties will agree to another truce. Of course. Tom, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Tom Muxley reporting into us from Tel Aviv with the latest uh, on the release of some Palestinian prisoners. Annabelle Denham still with me uh, from Telegraph. I mean, it's just heartbreaking, isn't it, when you watch some of the footage that we've seen over the last few days of kids being reunited with their parents. Um, that uh, four-year-old who came out who didn't know that he was an orphan, uh, this baby that not, was nine months old when abducted, now ten months old, has already spent 50 days in captivity, and that's saying, well, we don't know where, where he is. I mean, it just doesn't bear thinking about, does it?
No, it's, it's absolutely unimaginable, the pain that their families must be going through, what these children are being forced to endure. And I think it serves as a really important reminder to us here in the West of what happened on October 7th, of the brutality of Hamas, which is prescribed as a terrorist organization. Yeah. It is a death cult. And my concern is that the longer that this pause goes on, the more difficult it will be in terms of the propaganda war mm. for the IDF to resume the fighting for it, to resume its assault. But we need to keep remembering and keep reminding ourselves that there was a ceasefire in place before the 7th of October. Yes. And look at what happened. It's absolutely within Israel's right to defend itself. Mm. And if that involves eradicating Hamas, then it will need yeah. to do what is necessary. And as you say, with the propaganda war, and as, as the propaganda war kind of appears to swing more towards Hamas, more people come out and feel okay about saying certain things, like, for example, that, um, you know, these children are being released from Palestinian jails. They're not children. They're teenagers. Many of them um, have been convicted of, of very serious offences, including attempted murder, stabbings, you know, attempted um, terrorist acts and all sorts of things. But this idea, this, this picture is being painted by people that, you know, it's like a hostage exchange. It isn't. No, of course it isn't. And there's been moral equivalence ever since the 7th of October yeah. massacre. It was an extremely difficult decision for the Israeli government to come to, to do an initial hostage exchange of 50 Israelis for 150 Palestinian, yeah. as you say, minors, adults, who were being held in prisons in Israel for offences like terrorism. Yeah. Um, so this is not something that they have come to lightly. And I imagine that, you know, that mounting pressure on them to keep this humanitarian pause going for longer is you know, absolutely immense. But at the same time, they are going to want to resume their initial plan mm. of removing Hamas in order that they can protect themselves, that they can protect their citizens yeah. from future attacks. And what we know about some of the people who have planned October the 7th and the massacre, um, one guy in particular, I think the one who's in Qatar, um, was in fact a previously released Palestinian prisoner uh, who released, who was released by Israel under some other previous agreement, uh, then went off and plotted October the 7th. We also know that they've got some very senior Hamas terrorists in prison in Israel. Uh, and if they release those people, God knows what they could plan. Well, no, exactly. I mean, as I say, it's just an impossible position that the Israeli government is now finding itself in. I think we can all be relieved that some Israeli hostages have been uh, released. We will want the, all of them to find their way back home. Mm. No, I'm not suggesting that they're lost, unlike Leo Varadkar, who made that claim about oh. one of the Palestinians yeah. hostages, when you were just talking about some of the things that people have been saying over the last few days, including the conditions that these children yes. were being kept in by Hamas, as though they were some kind of benign yeah. terrorists who were taking good care of the hostages, who they'd snatched from their homes and away from their families. Um, but Ultimately, you know, we don't know how this, this conflict is going to unfold and it's absolutely imperative on the Israel to stamp out this terrorist organization. But they may win the war. The question will be, of course, whether they can mm, win the peace. Absolutely. Um, final word before we let you go, Annabelle, on the, the Elgin Marbles, which was a big story uh, throughout the course of today. Rishi Sunak cancelled the meeting he was due to have uh, with the Greek Prime Minister. Much gnashing of teeth and diplomatic sort of niceties being said. Um, do you care about the Elgin Marbles? 
Well, not especially. And mm. I suspect that most people in Britain don't either. It's quite strange that the Prime Minister has almost tried to turn the Elgin Marbles into some kind of cultural yeah. issue. And I think it probably just speaks to the lack of strategy now that's guiding the Conservative Party. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, they appointed Lord Cameron as Foreign Secretary. I'm not sure anybody effectively articulated what, why they made right. that decision, why they felt that he was the right person for the post rather than one of their 300 or so uh, Conservative yes. uh, MPs. And I I think we've got a similar situation here where Rishi Sunak has been wanting to come out and see, be seen to do something mm. bold. He wanted to be seen to start, be standing up to uh, the Greek government. But really all he's done is ignite a diplomatic incident yes. where it wasn't necessary. Where it wasn't really necessary. And also given what else is going on and what else people exactly. are talking about, I don't think there's many people walking up and down the high street of their local neighbourhood going, have you seen that story about the Elgin Marbles? Greece is trying to get them back. I mean, it's been going on for as long as I can remember anyway. Um, but I was listening to one a particular sort of conversation about it uh, earlier on today and there is this kind of principle at, at stake as well if you're going to go inside the British Museum and start saying everything in here has been taken and um, probably um, in a way that was not proper um, you're going to have to give it all back well what's the point of having museums you know surely the whole point of a museum is that people can go to a particular museum and see things that they couldn't otherwise see not everybody can afford to fly to Greece to look at the Acropolis to see what it looks like and that's isn't that the point Yes, I think that's right. The British Museum is one of just a handful of truly great museums with tens of thousands mm. of artefacts that brings in thousands, hundreds of thousands mm. of visitors every single year. Right. So, you know, it really is a case of allowing as many people to come and view these precious objects as possible. If they were brought here legally. There was a yeah. select committee that came to the decision that it was legal at the time yes. uh, by Elgin. And, it, you know, it's strange in some ways that this is the this wrangling mm. is still going on. I mean, you could perhaps argue that there's a case for shared ownership, not least the investment that's gone into the Acropolis to ensure that they would be um, looked after carefully. But I think your point, Mike, is a really important one, that when we've got 700,000 people, um, 700,000 net migration into this country mm. every single year, when we've got a cost of living crisis, when we've got 7.5 million people on the NHS backlog, I'm not convinced that this is the issue no. that's going to bring voters round to the Conservative cause. No, I really don't think it is. And also, given that the last story we saw about the British Museum was about how somebody who worked there was nicking loads of stuff that nobody even knew he was taking, um, you know, maybe they're worried the Elgin Marbles is going to be stolen again only by some guy who's in Kilburn. You know, he's going to throw them at his house. But it is, it is sort of magic because it goes, where do you end it? You know, it's like if you want to go after the Romans for some of the stuff they stole from us or some of the stuff they built here and then took away, I mean, it's just, you, you could just tie yourself up in knots, couldn't you? You could indeed. It's a bit like the reparations argument. If you go back far enough yeah. and you look across the world as a whole, I'm sure that you could find a case for from every the society. We want be, something, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Demanding reparations from from every other. So, you know, it, it, it's strange that this has become an issue once again. It seems to be one of those um, arguments that just crops up every mm. every couple of years or so um, that I'm not sure it's really igniting much fire in, in the British voters. No, I, think, I fear you may well be right. Annabelle, good to see you as ever. Annabelle Denham, deputy comment editor there uh, of The Telegraph. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Freeze! Put your hands up. Put them where I can see them. Because we're talking about the police coming up next and why they'd rather face terrorists than a gangster. Also, we'll bring you insights on the devastating Nottingham attacks after the killer entered his plea today. We'll get all that explained. See you after this. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I'll be taking your call soon, so pick up the phones now. But first, 
Armed police would rather face terrorists than regular criminals because there is less risk of a legal backlash. So said Britain's top cop today. Metropolitan Police Chief Mark Rowley is calling for urgent reforms to make things fairer for officers who can face years of scrutiny over their handling of life and death incidents. Let's get more on this now with two men who've been on the front line uh, of our streets and have seen plenty of situations that they'd probably rather not have seen. Former Metropolitan Police Detective Peter Blexley and former Metropolitan Chief Inspector Mike Neville. Peter and Mike, welcome uh, to the show. I was saying to the guys before, you, you two haven't been seen in the same place for a while. Uh, I can imagine there were times when that was probably quite uh, quite interesting uh, on the streets of London when police officers could actually do the job that they're now currently finding so difficult to do. Well, everybody can sleep safely at night because we formed a squad. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing. I mean, an incredible piece of the sun today. Uh, Mark Rowley saying, basically, my armed cops would rather face a terrorist than a criminal, saying that they know that if they shoot... A, a terrorist, they're not going to get the sort of scrutiny that they would get if they shot a basic sort of criminal or a guy running away from a scene, a robber, somebody who nicked a car, all of that stuff. Well, the elephant in the room, really, the tragedy of this is if you shoot a black guy. That's that, that's the problem. Yeah. So, the public, you know, you shoot a white gangster, no one's going to start shouting about that. Right. But what the officers will be frightened of, if you shoot a black suspect, there's all sorts of uh, publicity, mm. demands, and that, that is, that, come out of the that is a lit literally the elephant in the room. So, uh, and it, it's tragic. And it, if I, if any of the uh, viewers or listeners, uh, you know, would you want your husband, wife, uh, to be an armed officer who has to make that decision in a split second, do I shoot yeah. or not? And then you've got lawyers pouring over it for years and years and years, and it's simply unfair, mm. I think. You know, a surgeon, the, uh, the analogy I draw is a surgeon. Surgeons make mistakes, you know, they're operating on your heart, they might nick an artery, right. make a mistake, we all accept that. Officers, the people we ask to make these dreadful decisions on the spur of the moment, shoot or not shoot, mm. and then they're not supported yeah. at all. And is it, do you think, Peter, the fact that if there is what you might call a terrorist incident, we've seen plenty of them just around this neighbourhood of London Bridge, that if a police officer shoots a suspect, the people generally are more accepting of the fact that that suspect was probably doing something wrong. Whereas if it's, uh, as you say, a common or garden criminal, especially if it happens to be black, there's more likelihood of people going, well, maybe he wasn't um, doing anything, maybe he was just picked on. Yeah, well, the four terrorists that have been shot dead since 2017 yeah. have been shot dead following clearly outrageous, dreadful terrorist yeah. events, particularly one on London Bridge, not so yeah. very far away from here. Right. So the armed officers turn up, there's bloodshed, there's loss of life, they can instantly establish what's going on in that situation, yeah. and when need be, fire a fatal shot or more. Yes. Um, so those circumstances, because they're so clearly defined, they're obviously a lot easier to make a judgment call on. What Mark Rowley is re relating to with regards to a criminal is a case from 2015 mm. when a man called Jermaine Baker was in a car with some cronies who were planning to f free somebody from yeah. a prison van. Right. They were going to spring them, right? And Baker got shot with a single shot by a, a police officer known as W80, right. firearms officer. That was in 2015. And so now, we're talking nine years later. So W80 has stood trial acquitted. Mm. There's been a public inquiry which ruled that Baker was lawfully killed. Yeah. And now there are still outstanding disciplinary proceedings against W. And isn't there, isn't there some suggestion that his identity might be revealed at some point? Now it? we're talking about NX121, yeah. right. 
who is the police officer who's oh, waiting trial yeah. for shooting Chris Cabba, right. and he will be named at the end of January. Yeah, which must be an awful situation for any police officer to be in, his family and all that. The other story that's in this piece in the Sun today is about the um, police officer who was driving towards a terrorist incident, um, had an accident, and was then sort of more or less prosecuted for dangerous driving. But I, I, I think the public are very much on side of this. It's not the public who are demanding these things. Mm. The, uh, the, the silent majority, you might uh, call them, they think that the police should be shooting criminals, terrorists who are involved in fires. They, they accept that if a police officer is driving at 80 miles an hour to try and stop a terrorist attack, something may happen that causes them to crash. Yeah. These, these are human beings that we are trusting to do things. Just like I say, mm. we trust the surgeon to do the right thing. And occasionally the surgeon makes a mistake that costs them their life. Yeah. But it's not done deliberately. And with murder in particular, the, the rules are with malice aforethought. That's been the, the, you commit murder with malice aforethought. That's the legal definition mm. for centuries. How do you form malice aforethought, the decision to kill somebody unlawfully? Within a second. Mm. You've got, you know, somebody's driving towards you, you're full of adrenaline, you've got a firearm, you think they're going to kill you or your colleagues or some member of the public, you pull your foot, you go out and you, do, you yes. make the decision then. And then, as I say, the lawyers are pouring over this for eight, uh, eight years, yeah. nine years, as Peter has said. And it's just not fair. On well, this the is the thing. I mean, it becomes, to me, a situation that I saw in America when I was living there in the 80s. Too many lawyers with too many reasons to stop justice from happening. And basically, you never get it. You know, because if you think back to one of those terrorists who was shot dead outside the Wheat Sheaf, the pub in Borough Market, um, you know, what lawyer in the world is going to understand what was going on there? You know, what we know is that there were a bunch of people inside the pub barricading the doors. This guy was armed with a sword, tied to his wrist, trying to get inside it to start slashing people around. Copper turns up, or, well, depending on whether you think he was copper or special services or whatever, um, shoots him, he's dead. You know, you can't wait and see what he's going to do, can you? Clearly defined circumstances yeah. with a large number of witnesses, members of the public, independent, so a far easier set mm. of circumstances to make a judgment call on. With, of course, W80's case, which I'll refer back to, yeah. he said that he saw Baker reaching for what he believed to be a firearm. Yes. There wasn't an actual gun found there, but an imitation gun was yeah. later found in right. the car. So, of course, you get these grey areas, mm. and the lawyers want to exploit those, and they want to kind of make a case right. which might not be there. And, of course... We have the Independent Office of Police Conduct mm. who investigate these matters. And firearms officers are very aggrieved because they feel this body gets blown by the political wind yes. and that it might not be entirely impartial, that it could be subjected to political pressure, and there's a lot of resentment about that. Yeah, absolutely right. And, I mean, the police in general having a pretty rough time at the moment, not least because of the way that certain marches are being policed, the way that, you know, the pro-Palestinian marches are being policed versus the way that they're doing other things. I mean, it's not an easy time to be a copper, is it? No, we, we ask police officers to keep us safe. We ask people to make the most dramatic decisions. Should I shoot this person dead or not? Should I drive my car at 80 miles an hour through a busy, busy area to get to the right place to save somebody who's in danger or stop somebody who's killing people? Should I stop and search people. And the easiest thing for an officer now is to say, do you know what, I'll do none of those right. things. Because I'll never get in trouble if I don't stop and search people. I'll never get in yeah. trouble if I don't drive fast. I won't get in trouble if I don't shoot people. But what that makes 
it makes London and the rest of the country a more dangerous place mm. because officers have been, they're not being protected. I mean, credit to uh, Mark Rowley, he says they're standing up for officers now and saying what's going on, but we need, the officers need more protection. Mm. You know, the idea that you can charge somebody for murder <coughs> when they've made a reasonable decision to shoot somebody who's involved in criminal activities and you can clearly show that but they're not getting the, that, that support. And the number of people who are shot by the police is so minimal, isn't it, in this country? And, and the number of people who are killed by the police is so minimal. Let me ask you, last year, yeah. weapons were drawn over 20,000 times yeah. in the Met right. and fired twice. Right. And that's an extraordinary low figure, isn't it, when well, you think about other countries in the world where the police are armed. We had the ridiculousness of the Black Lives Matter here, where they were marching around the streets saying, hands up, don't shoot. Mm. When, you know, most police officers, the only thing they've got in their pocket is a truncheon. Yeah. You know, so that's how ridiculous that sort of statement is here. And the idea that officers go out with the intent of uh, shooting anybody, no one wants to shoot anybody because it's just an enormous mm. amount of drama. Yeah. The moment that officer, brave officer, pulls out a firearm, shoots a suspect, their life is there on hold for five, ten years. Mm. All the, the, the prospects of going to prison, their family worrying about them. It's simply not good enough. Mm. And politicians need to get a grip of this and, and sort it out. And as I say, the elephant in the room is if you shoot anybody, if you shoot a black suspect, that's when the, the wall comes to your door. Yeah, absolutely. Let me just ask you about um, a development in the Nottingham um, attack, terror attack. Uh, you would call it. Uh, there was a plea issued today. Valdo uh, Calacane admitted killing, um, but with diminished responsibility. We can't get into, obviously, the whys and wherefores of the case, but can you just explain to me, um, either of you, which what, what that means, Peter, for, 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 the, for the sort of legal purposes? Yes, so the man has admitted being responsible for the three deaths and the other three charges of attempted murder right. because he admits that he stole a van and then drove it into three people. So right. there were six victims, three tragically dead, three very seriously injured. With regards to the three murder cases, yes, he's pleaded guilty to killing them but claiming that he had diminished responsibility because of a mental condition right. he was suffering from at the time. The prosecution now have asked for some months to analyse the evidence, they will then make a decision where they're going to say, we do not accept those pleas and we want to press ahead with the murder charges, okay. or they accept them. We shall okay. see in January, I think. Right. Peter Bletchley, Mike Noble, great to see you. Thank you very much um, indeed. You're watching the Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. Get your phones out now, though, because I'm about to take your calls. 0344 499 1000. Calls have cost a national rate. But I'll tell you what Harry and Meghan's friend, Ovid Scobie, doesn't want you to know about his new crappy book. This is Talk TV. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Taking the Mic. Now, it's hard to imagine someone more unqualified to opine about the royal family than Omid Scobie, the self-appointed insider who's currently doing the bidding in the media for the Duke and Duchess of Netflix. The Montecito Massive, yes, it's them again, Harry and Meghan, as if their fanciful odyssey to California wasn't enough to write about. He's come up with yet another load of old bollocks to call non-fiction. First, it was Finding Freedom, his 2020 tome about how hard done by multi-millionaire royal heir Harry was by his family. And now poor little Meghan couldn't be the best princess in the palace. Now, we get Endgame from Odious, which he niftily subtitles Inside the Royal Family and the Monarchy's Fight for Survival. Of course, it's nothing of the sort. 
According to Scobie, Meghan and Harry haven't spoken to him about anything in his new book that he says their friends have. Not sure they've got any left, but I guess we'll take his word for that one. He says Meghan doesn't want to return to England. Good. He says Harry doesn't care if he gets an apology or not. Also good. Claims the Princess of Wales hasn't spoken to Meghan in four years. Brilliant. I mean, why would you? Trouble is, of course, scabies and the truth are not familiar bedfellows. He's already admitted lying to the Times about his age. Piers Morgan pointed out on his show last night that references to him in the book are entirely made up. And as for his face, most of it looks like it was crafted out of the leftover wax at Madame Tussauds. I think it's safe to say that we can take Endgame with a very large pinch of salt. It's very clear to see what's going on here. As I said last night, it reads like a threatening letter from an ex-girlfriend determined to ruin life for everyone else. A bitter, twisted and hysterical call for attention. The DIY royal author is off in America selling his wares, where the public is a lot more gullible than it is here. The royal family isn't fighting for survival. Harry and Meghan are. They've blown it and they know it. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Let's strip the Duke of Sussex of all of his titles and while we're at it, let's take away his citizenship too. If he hates us so much, that should make him happy. And that was Taking the Mic. We'll hear more about Omid Scobie coming up. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I'll be taking your calls in the next hour. But first, I've got a crazy story about trans activists trying to blacklist our country from the United Nations. And we'll find out if Harry and Meghan could really be moving to Los Angeles. Stay right there. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. In the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and of course, we're on your smart speaker. Tonight, Michael Gove tells the COVID inquiry locked down too late, but defended Boris Johnson's decision making as gladiatorial. Trans rights activists lobby to get Britain blacklisted from the United Nations Human Rights Body, and a new book deepens the rift between Harry and Meghan and the royal family, with rumours the pair could be moving to Los Angeles.
don't forget you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and we will get to you on the phones 0344 499 a very busy first hour there calls will cost you uh, the national rate um, and coming up in a moment I'm going to tell you all about the United Nations what's going on just one other thing to mention uh, a group of people have apparently gathered um, a few thousand people gathered earlier on tonight National Albanian Day uh, loads of people driving around in cars London is now just becoming a kind of protest central whatever you like just come and protest the police are making arrests Fireworks are being thrown. Unbelievable. You know, we'll bring you more on that as soon as we know what's going on. Uh, but you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you right now. And if you thought the United Nations was worth a fag end, then this will be where that outmoded belief, I'm afraid, dies. Because for years, the UN has been the guardian of all things woke, all things undemocratic, and all things anti-West. It is the virtue signalling centre of the world on the exclusive east side of New York City, where all of its hundreds of diplomats are free to commit as many crimes as they like without fear of prosecution. When I lived there, it wasn't unknown for UN staff to literally get away with murder as they simply flashed their diplomatic immunity badges and forget about trying to get them to pay parking fines. Today, in their latest outrage, the UN is threatened to strip Great Britain of its human rights A status, which would mean we'd be blacklisted from its human rights council. They've previously done this to, wait for it, Afghanistan, Nicaragua and Paraguay. Apparently Russia is currently suspended, so we'd actually be in a worse place than Vladimir Putin. Why this punishment, I hear you ask? It's nothing to do with Rwanda and the UN's ruling that our government was operating outside of the law. No, no, no. It's all to do with Stonewall, the controversial LGBT charity, inveigling its way into every aspect of our lives. They've complained about our own Equalities and Human Rights Commission because of their belief in defending biological sex. That's right. It's yet another trans problem. In other words, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Get rid of it. Later on in the show, we'll bring you a first look at all uh, the front pages going on. We've got a great panel, uh, and we'll bring you all of the news as it's coming in to us. But right now, uh, we're going to do something completely different, of course, because it's now time uh, to look at what is going on over in America. Because I'm not sure if you've heard but the Duke and Duchess of Sussex have never been respected by the royal family. Harry! Harry! Well, William is now in stiff competition with his own dad, King Charles, and desperate to run the country, apparently. That's what Obed Scobie's new book, Endgame, says. And it certainly tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. <laughs> Only kidding. Scobie says he's got sources close to Harry and Meghan, which is how he got inside information for the tell-all book. But obviously, they've got nothing to do with it, and they're even looking at moving to Los Angeles. Closer to the action, maybe she's going to get another job back in Hollywood. Who knows? Now let's get live from Los Angeles, the host of the To Die For Dirty podcast, Kenzie Schofield, uh, because the Duke and Duchess of York might be getting in touch with you soon, Kenzie, uh, to see if you know anyone that's got a $16 million mansion to sell. Very good evening. Uh, good evening to you, too. That's right. The Duke and Duchess of We Want Privacy, that famous <laughs> South Park episode, heading to, you know, probably the least private paparazzi-wise city in the entire world. I mean, Harry and Meghan, if they decide to move, he could actually become the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. How exciting is that? Um, but if they decide to move to Los Angeles, they should anticipate to be chased around by photographers. That's what this city is known for. In fact, it's why a lot of celebrities move outside of L.A. Um, so uh, wild that TMZ is reporting that Harry and Meghan would like to live closer to the city. Uh, you know, 
we have seen and heard that Meghan Markle has spent a lot of time in a hotel room near her agency, despite the fact that that she signed with them in April and, and there has been little to no return on investment there. They have not um, shown us that she has any new opportunities over those last few months. Uh, but Megan has spent a significant amount of time here in L.A., so perhaps it makes sense for them so that they don't have to travel back and forth as often. But surprising when they've spent so much time really tearing into photographers. Yes, it is. And also, we wouldn't want to see them being chased around, at, you know, 10 miles an hour again like we did in New York where, you know, the, the police actually had to stand back to let the, the taxi go so slowly down the road after that uh, event that they attended um, when they were supposedly terrified and then popped into the police station as well just to escape uh, from the very slow-moving paps. And don't forget that they had to utilize, you know, video of Diana and Catherine, the Princess of Wales, yes. being harassed by photographers in their own Netflix documentary because none existed of Meghan being harassed by paparazzi. So they utilized... Harry Potter footage of, you know, Harry Potter red carpets, and they used actual video of Diana and Kate because it didn't exist with Meghan. Right. Well, I mean, last time we saw Meghan on a red carpet, you couldn't get her off it. You know, one of those assistants was trying to, like, pull her off to the side and go, and she kept doing that. You do that very well. And she just did that little <laughs> shimmy where you're going, no, I'm just going to go this way for a bit. I mean, it was great. You know, she's clearly very good at avoiding um, the hand of responsibility to pull her out of the way. So she seems to be quite enjoying that particular red carpet. But the big news, of course, tonight is all about Omid Scobie's new book being pulped in Netherlands. I don't know if you've heard this one, but apparently, unbeknownst to him, he says, I didn't do it. Um, the Dutch version of the book, or the first printing of the Dutch version of the book, includes a passage in which... The name of the person who was supposedly the member of the royal family who was racist to Harry is actually published. That's right. And legally, I don't know if your show feels comfortable saying it, so I won't. No, I don't think um, we but, should. Right, so I won't. But we've, you know, it, it's it's a name that's been circulated before here yeah. in the States. An author named Christopher Anderson wrote a book named The King where yeah. he tells a similar story. Tom Bauer, uh, you know, uh, in his book Revenge, actually says that it could have per perhaps been Camilla that had made a joke about what the baby would look like based on its mother and father. Um, and, you know, everyone I've heard report it says that there was an innocence about the comment and that, you know, it's what Chris Rock said in yes. his brutal stand-up against Meghan Markle. Every interracial family sits down and debates what the baby could look like. It's sweet, it's innocent, it is a natural question that yeah. you ask and that's coming from Chris Rock that's not coming from me um, so it has been pulled it's you know it's not a great look for Omid uh, now Omid claims that he never put the name in the man in the English manuscript so he doesn't know how that translation could have come to fruition mm. uh, but it's certainly doing you know probably what he wants PR wise for the book and, and here we are talking about it well we are but that's because we're really talking about Harry and Meghan. I mean, he's now claiming as well that he's sort of not really spoken to Harry and Meghan about this book. His last book, you know, uh, which was their sort of description of finding freedom and getting away from all the things they hated, whether the sort of the, um, the, the claustrophobic nature of Britain and the press and the media and the horrible scrutiny and the horrible family. And there they were off to America for this newfound life together. And it was all going to be great. But it hasn't really worked out like that. So he's now saying, oh, of course, we don't really talk anymore. Um, but I talked to their friends 
So, I mean, does anybody um, uh, out there know who these friends are? And is anyone speculating that they're probably nobody apart from Harry and Meghan? Well, first of all, I feel like the first book should have been called Finding Freedom and Filing for Unemployment because <laughs> Harry and Meghan have been on the struggle bus since they got to America. Let's be honest. Yes. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me that Omid can say, I don't talk to Harry and Meghan, but I talk to their friends. But I have all this inside information about the royal family. The royal family has absolutely nothing to do with Harry and Meghan. So they certainly don't have anything to do with anyone that would consider themselves a friend of Harry and Meghan's. You know, there are multiple errors in this book and things that I just find very hard to comprehend, like the king having his shoelaces ironed. What kind of, sh you know, every male pair of shoes that I see are those almost plasticky or leathery yeah. round shoes that wouldn't require ironing. You know, the, the this is a man that wears holes in his socks and wore a recycled suit to Harry and Meghan's wedding. His Aston Martin runs on cheese and wine. I highly doubt that somebody's ironing his shoelaces. Yes. So there's a couple of passages in there that I just have a hard time digesting. Uh, and, you know, I think that he claims William briefs the media through a third party. Right. Okay, if that's your definition of briefing the media, then if Meghan is telling you something through a friend, that's Meghan Markle briefing you. So, you know, there's an element of hypocrisy there. We need to, I guess, different rules for them, as always, with Harry and Meghan. Yeah, of course. Let's have a look at Arthur Edwards. He was on Talk Today with Jeremy Carl and uh, Nicola Thorpe this morning, uh, talking about how the royal family will be receiving uh, this latest tome. I think um, uh, they'll be pretty angry about it because, as, as Pierce said, most of it's untrue. I mean, it's um, you know the fact that the king briefs the journalists. Now, look, I've been working with him for over 40 years. He's never once briefed me. He's never. I've had a few rockets from him, but he's never told me uh, what's <laughs> happening. And, and he wouldn't. And he would never discuss that. He would never. He wouldn't even dream of asking him about his family. But this is the thing, isn't it, Kinsey, that people, veteran royal correspondents, I mean, I was covering uh, Charles and Diana at the White House with President Reagan. That's how old I am. Uh, when they came and she danced with John Travolta, I was actually there. Yeah. You know, unbelievable, right? But, you know, you don't get these tete-a-tetes with them. They don't sit down with you and go, I must tell you about my terrible relationship with my brother. You know, it's an absolute nightmare. But let's see, as uh, Arthur there referred to Piers Morgan, he's written a great column today um, about the lick spittle. Uh, as he calls him, Omid Scobie. Uh, this is what he had to say about the claims in the book. I got a copy of the book today, and I just checked, as you do, it's a digital copy. I did a little search, up I come three or four times. And on one occasion, he states, as a fact, that I have regular phone conversations with Queen Camilla. For the record, I have never had a single phone conversation with Queen Camilla. Now, he says, as a fact, in his book, that we have regular phone conversations. That I know, personally know, is an absolute lie. So how's he been received in America? I mean, unfortunately, I do think, because he's here now, did you know yeah, that? I that he's that. staying in the Hollywood Hills. I, yeah. I do think that he's more accepted here in America because Americans are so invested in the soap opera. And that is what this is. This yeah. is one of those tacky, gossipy, just mean-spirited books. And, um, you know, Americans are... They're, they, uh, they're invested in the drama. So I do think that you are much more critical of Omid than American media is. And that's why Omid is going to those Sussex 
sympathizer media outlets only because he doesn't want to be challenged. If you're going to say there are multiple people within the royal family that are racist, then you should have the courage to sit down in yeah. front of a journalist and have them pound you until you explain yourself. Yeah. Exactly right. Brilliant stuff. Listen, uh, we're going to be talking about this book, I'm sure, for a while, because each pit that gets unpicked, we're going to need to have your uh, say on exactly everything that's going on. Kinsey, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Kinsey Schofield there, uh, reporting into us from Los Angeles, California, where supposedly Meghan and Harry uh, are thinking about moving back to. I mean, is there no end to the move? What about the kids? Don't they get allowed to settle somewhere? You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Phone in right now, because I'm about to take your calls right here. 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost you the national rate. And, of course, the BBC has made yet another massive blunder. I'll tell you why their show should be called Have I Got Hamas News For You? Coming back right after this. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Work. If you're like me, you'll be finding it extremely hard to remember the last time the BBC got it right on anything. From planted audience members on question time to their stubborn insistence that they could never refer to Hamas as terrorists. But the latest atrocities include Middle East correspondent Jeremy Bowen admitting that he got it wrong about Israel bombing a hospital. But he had no regrets. And then, of course, there's Gary Lineker and his endorsement of Noreen Jones' podcast, which rehearsed the old Israel committing genocide trope. Today, though, we learn that they've absolutely outdone themselves. The powers that be have decided it's a great idea to hire some geezer called Guz Khan to present Have I Got News For You. First up, no one's ever heard of him. But worse than that, he's been busy on social media accusing Israel of ethnic cleansing and genocide as well. This coming on top of the BBC telling employees not to go on last weekend's march against anti-Semitism has got many inside the broadcasting organisation worried that their one-sided view of the war is seriously damaging their reputation. Khan, the comedian, get it, hasn't had much to say about Hamas refusing to release the 10-month-old baby they're currently still holding hostage, but he's very upset about Israeli war crimes. So if it's, have I got Hamas news for you, the BBC is your go-to place. Better stick with Talk TV instead. Because their world is the world of woke. The world of woke. Now, lots of you have been getting in touch. You can have your say on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Let's go to those phones now. Let's hear from John uh, in West Lothian. He wants to talk about policing. John, very good evening to you. Good evening, Mike. Yes, a very interesting conversation you had there with regard to. Uh, what happens with these uh, armed officers. Yes. I think it's absolutely disgraceful the way in which they're, they're treated. They're clearly the people that's picking on them have never had to make an instant decision in their life. No. Well, certainly not a life or death one. No. And if, if I'm sure if, if they were in danger and the policeman came along and saved their life, they would take a different approach. Yeah. But, but I think there's also a wider point here, which... Um, is if we look at what's happening with all the illegal immigrants, what we're ha with, a, with a guy who's claiming dimin diminished responsibility yeah. for the killings, and the cost of this ridiculous COVID exercise. Mm. The only people that seem to be winning out of all these types of situations is lawyers. Yeah. You well, know, we've become a nation of lawyers, haven't we? I used to say this when I lived in America, that you couldn't do anything without a lawyer. I once tried to rent an office space and went to the landlord, did the deal, everything was fine, signed the lease, he went, we can't accept it. I said, why? He said, well, you have to have a lawyer sign it. I said, well, I don't need a lawyer. He's like, no, you have to, we can't legally accept your contract unless you've had it seen by a lawyer. And it's getting like that here now. 
Yeah, and a lot of these people um, that's getting all this is being paid by this by us. Yeah. It'll be legal aid. They don't have any money to pay these lawyers. No, of course not. And of course, the longer the lawyer can drag it out, the better it is for yeah. them. So, you know, the government really needs to have a look at the fundamental way in which the legal system operates with these types of cases. Yeah, absolutely right. And I mean, people are going to be lining up to become lawyers now because that's where the money is. I mean, the COVID inquiry, which we're going to talk to uh, with the panel coming in a little while. Uh, thank you very much indeed for your call. Uh, we'll take more calls later on uh, if we can, 0344-499-1000. But the COVID inquiry is just one of many stories we need to talk about, as well as, of course, the police now having to put up with yet another um, outrage on the streets because uh, there's a load of people out there now in the city of London um, demonstrating on behalf of Albanian National Day. We'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, the COVID inquiry rages on meanwhile. Uh, Michael Gove was testifying today. He blamed the flawed pandemic response on the Cabinet Office being plied with extra responsibilities like, in his words, a Mary Poppins bag. But unlike Mary Poppins, uh, it wasn't very effective at dealing with the crisis. Well, we didn't need the inquiry to tell us that. He also took the opportunity to apologise to us all. Have a look at this. I want to take this opportunity, if I may, my lady, to apologise to uh, the victims uh, who endured um, uh, so much pain, the families who endured so much loss as a result of the mistakes that were made by government in response to the pandemic. And as a minister responsible for the Cabinet Office, and who was also close to many of the decisions that were made, I must take my share of responsibility for that. My lady, indeed. Um, I'm now joined by two my ladies. Um, also, Deputy Police for the Sun, Ryan Savies here, uh, journalist and broadcaster Emma Wolfe, and for the first time, Esther Krakow on this yeah. show. I haven't had you on the Independent Republic, Mike Graham, I don't think, for many a year. Yeah. So welcome back. Thank you. Um, anyway, you're watching uh, all of this going on around us. Let's talk about this new thing, Emma, that politicians seem to want to do, which is to say sorry. Mm. But it doesn't mean anything. It's completely meaningless. Completely meaningless. Uh, Michael Gove said the government were too lenient and too late about lockdown, about locking down. I would suggest that the words he's looking for are too chaotic, yeah. too nonsensical, yeah. too draconian, yeah. too disorganised, too ill-informed, too not following the science, too manipulative, too utterly pointless. Yeah. As is the COVID inquiry. As right, is the I mean, COVID inquiry. We've talked about this before. I mean, I called for it to be completely abolished last night because I thought, what's the point? We all know what they're going to end up saying, but they're going to take another hundred million quid to say it, and another what, three years? It's going to take, it's going to take a long time. I thought one thing that Michael Gove got um, shouted down quite quickly with by uh, by Hugo KC is when he started to say that this. Covid pandemic could have been could have been man-made, mm. and, uh, oh, yes. and and straight away you can't, you can't talk about this. Now I understand there's a remit, and they they, they only want to go so far. But you do. I was speaking to a Tory MP tonight who was saying they should really be trying to get to the bottom yeah. of absolutely everything. If you're spending that amount of money, you're going to spend that long long amount of time looking into it. Sort it all out. Mm, well, absolutely. I think, I think the, the, the obvious reason is, is because there are diplomatic implications. If you're having a COVID inquiry, the first question you should ask is, where did COVID come from? Yeah. But obviously nobody wants to, to open they that. They don't want to know the answer to that. Exactly. And I think that's what I find frustrating. I mean, if you don't ask that question, there really should be no basis for a COVID inquiry. What no. exactly are we discussing here? A ghost? Right. We need to know what we're talking about and where it came well, from. Well, I wouldn't mind also answering the question, you know, why was it at the time that if you did ask that question, um, as a journalist, you'd be put on some kind of watch list and you'd be told um, in no uncertain terms by uh, certain regulators that you better keep your mouth shut or else anything that you said 
uh, would be taken down and used against you in evidence. It's only recently, it really in the last year, that people have started to say, look, this was an utter shambles. This yeah. was an utter, you know, and looking closely at the kind of uh, the COVID vaccines and the, the money and yeah. the big pharma and all of that. And all, all, all the politicians and Congress people, particularly in the US, that had investments in these pharmaceutical companies that they greenlit yeah. to 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 um you know produce these vaccines i mean at the end of the day i think this this feels like a catholic priest and a confession mm. like all these tory mps being lined yeah. up we're sorry we're sorry we're, yeah, sorry, we're sorry. sorry no no question about whether lockdown lockdown right. even works the efficacy of it was right. there a different way of, of stratifying the public so you didn't have everyone locking down but the most vulnerable all of that like they did in florida mm. like they did in sweden none of that no. so it really it just it feels like a catholic i should confession. point out of course that some of us were asking questions um, myself, Peter Hitchens, Julie Hartley Brewer, so many people on, on, on Talk Radio at the time. Um, Julia was put on a list, uh, Neil O'Brien's list. I think I was on it for a shorter time. Peter Hitchens was certainly on it. Um, and yeah, they, they sort of gloss over all of that. Like well, they, but they gloss over all that as if it didn't matter. And this apology business, I mean, it used to be that if a politician apologised, particularly a cabinet minister, he would at least then resign from the cabinet as a result of getting it wrong. Yeah. I mean, Downing Street were quite quick today to say that, oh, the World Health Organization are trying to find out where all it, where, where yeah, it yeah. started. Sure they are. But the trouble is, you kind of need to find out the answers to that, just in case it, a pandemic happens quickly well, to learn the lessons. There's another question that nobody's asking lessons. about the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization, I remember very specifically back in January of 2020, basically said, oh yeah, don't worry, nothing to worry about here, uh, this will not jump species, it's only got bats. No human the, to human the, transmission. The, uh, no, but also no, no animal to human either. Yeah. And so they said it won't, it won't even jump to humans. No human will actually get it. That was their first take. And then they went in to find out where it had come from, and they came out having been told by the Chinese, oh, nothing to do with the lab, forget about that. It all came from some soup that somebody had with a bat <laughs> in it. You know, and you're kind of going, oh, fine, okay then. And they <laughs> just went, that's fine. And now we're supposed to believe everything that the World Health Organization says. Yeah, well, no, 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 no accountability. There's no institutional integrity um, with these. I mean, the World Health Organization is sort of Prince Harry of the medical world to me. Well. You don't believe the word <laughs> they say. Sorry to mix. Or like on Scoby, I would say more yeah. like. Yeah, we might have to get onto that because there'll yeah. be a lot of that in the papers. Um, but the other funny thing today that happened was Rishi Sunak's um, rather weird um, video that he put out. I don't know if we've got it. I hope we have. Can we have a look at it? Oh, it's going to not be, it's not going to be here yet. We're not doing too well tonight on videos. But anyway, um, I know he's got it now. See, you tell me you haven't got it and then you have got it. Let's go. Right now, something very exciting is happening in the sky above us. It all started with a government competition to support the industry to achieve the first net zero transatlantic flight on an aircraft using 100% sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF. Our government made up to a million pounds of funding available to support the project, and right now, it's taking off. Today's Virgin Atlantic flight to New York will be entirely fueled by SAF, made primarily from waste oils and fats. Not only will SAF be key in decarbonizing aviation, but it could create a UK industry with an annual turnover of almost two and a half billion pounds, which could support over 5,000 UK jobs. It's great that British businesses and institutions like Virgin Atlantic, Rolls-Royce, Boeing and Sheffield University continue to raise the bar in aviation. Now that is blue sky thinking. I mean, aside from the rather obscure timing of that, mm -hmm. given what else is going on, I don't fancy getting on a plane that's powered by chip fat oil. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, there's a guy sort of outside the kebab shop down the road collecting <laughs> Stuff go. What are you doing? Oh, I work for Virgin Atlantic. I'm just going straight yeah. to the airport with this. I've actually got a confession to make. I'm flying to New York on Friday with Virgin Atlantic. 
I don't want to fly on a plane that's not powered by aviation fuel. Sorry, if that sounds like I'm superstitious. I'd miss it. The good stuff. I mean, what is Rishi Sunak's obsession with this kind of American style video where he's just talking to the camera yeah. for like, you know, a minute. It's kind of like, right. like, you know, when you're trying to pitch an idea in Silicon yeah. Valley or like pitching yeah. your business. It's, it's very, well, it's very strange. Goldman Sachs, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. I think there's a little bit of legacy building here. Yeah. Rishi Sunak knows that he may be out of power, you know, in any year's time. You know, he'll, he'll be pushing our head deep down. Can we win? Well, there's an outside chance. But you look at the policies he's tried to put forward in the last, you know, few months, the A-levels, the smoking ban, all this. this is Let's not forget the yeah. AI safety. Oh, issue. exactly. I mean, exactly. that was one of my favorites. Exactly. Um, he's, he's just trying to find out. <laughs> you know, in ten, no. In ten, no. In 10 years' time, he will say, I told you so. Yeah. That, well, I they are. That's I mean, that's the thing. In, in addition now, Emerson said the kind of the, the ridiculousness of politicians apologizing, not meaning it. They're all about their legacy, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, Tony Blair still hasn't got over the fact that everybody hates him because of Iraq, because he thought he'd done quite well remaking Britain into his own David image. David Cameron has had a chip on his shoulder Cameron for seven years. Yeah. Now destroyed our back. country. Yeah. He's yeah. now had to come back to try and prove himself because he screwed up the referendum. He sat in his separate yeah. part. Jordan Brown is still really, really pissed off. I mean, he's about writing Labour, Scotland you know, Labour's and, um, manifesto, so he's really finding yeah. his way back. Well, but, but seriously. Wait till you see the manifesto. <laughs> You know. But Rishi Sunak, you say, you know, quite apart from the odd timing, what is he thinking right now? Yeah. The Middle East is on a knife edge. Right. His poll ratings are all-time low. The country is not in a great state, really. Yeah. And there he is, recording these little videos with his rictus grin and right. his awkward so delivery. Going, it'd be a really good idea to about, like zoom out, yeah. you know, and look at the Zoom out, and then you look up, and then, and then we'll have the jet going above you. I don't think it's a bad idea to try and promote this idea because obviously, you know, it's been pioneered by, by Britain, but don't have Rishi Sunak fronting it because yeah. it's just things... But the Prime do, Minister who, yeah, exactly. who last night cancelled, you know, an important, an important European meeting with the Greek Prime Minister because he got in a hissy fit about the yeah. Elgin Marble, uh, Sunak that is, not Mitsukaratis. But for then Rishi Sunak to come out with this video, which presumably was filmed a few weeks ago, but again, it's timing, it's well, yeah. tone deaf. But that's the other thing. I mean, we heard, did we not, the, the announcement that he made about something or other, I can't remember what it was now. And you was, told me this. Yeah, no, is that the... There's also... It was the school thing, yeah. yeah. So the day, the, day, the day of the European court's, um, oh, yeah. uh, you know, decision. Rwanda. Yeah. Ryan said to me, yeah, well, that was when he was meant to make the school yeah. speech. So he had so little idea that he was going to get get rejected with that, yeah. that he actually had planned to do something else, which tells you that he's it's not really he's tuned not, in. It's as though he's not in this country no. at the time. No. It's like he's reading the country as if he's on a spaceship from somewhere else. <laughs> because, this is what Britain's like. This is what they care about. Two no. days after a huge anti-Semitism march yeah. in, the, in the capital. You know, there's lots going on. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, we heard from Tom Hunt MP today, the MP for Ipswich, who's always been... You know, he's one of those guys who's he's always been quite outspoken over the but not as much as he is now. He's basically said he now believes that this is a national emergency. Mm. The whole issue of migration, not just the boats, mm. but everything. You know, the, the, the announcement that the, the net migration figure is still up around 700,000. He's really angry about yeah, it. He, he's really digging in. And it seems that in the, in the House of Commons today, Robert Jenrick, the Home Office Minister, he was digging in as well. And there's a headline today, in tomorrow, in one of the papers, uh, Jenrick goes rogue. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much what he was doing. Yeah, he yeah. said, if you'd implemented the plan that I put forward to Downing Street before Christmas last year, Christmas last year, we may be okay. Right. But, you know, he, I think that the Suella plan didn't, you know, come to fruition. Right. This Jenrick plan hasn't come to fruition. Downing Street are looking around to try and make this work. Yeah.
they said that this, uh, this, this new treaty with Rwanda would come forward um, within days of right. that Supreme Court judgment. That hasn't happened. Hasn't, that may no, be no, happen no, well into the future now. Yeah. And yeah. where's this emergency it's, legislation? Where's it's, it's, that amazing, going? it's amazing how many uh, politicians are keeping Sunak's feet to the fire, particularly on the immigration front. I mean, I, I was, um, I did uh, something for um, Sky Australia, and they were talking about, oh, if all the 500,000 migrants have entered um, net migration in, into Australia. I was like, yeah. well. <laughs> Has the UK got news for you? Right. Because with a fraction of the landmass, we've let in 750,000 people right. in the span of what? A year? Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I think the, the issue of it being a national emergency is, is a no-brainer because we can see it in our daily lives. I mean, I, don't, I can't see my GP yeah. for, for weeks at a time. Right. You know, there, there's a, a, a huge pressure on, on schools, for instance, because we know 40% of those migrants yeah. are actually dependents. So yeah. they're using, you know, public infrastructure, uh, healthcare, education and all of that. How are they not treating this like our hair is on right. fire? I know, because everywhere you go as well, it's rammed with people. You know, there are so many people in London now that it must have expanded in size even in the last five years. And where are they million. living? Where are they all? Where are all these people? Yeah, yeah, and the housing, and the schools, mm. and nurseries, and things like it's that. Just, it's just—it's completely unsustainable. And that's not xenophobic or right. racist or anything to say. It's just the amount of people yeah. putting pressure trouble, on basic systems yeah. that no one seems to have planned yeah. for. Michael Gove, uh, the Department for Leveling Up, uh, and all these departments—they keep renaming housing and communities, yeah. whatever, whatever. They seem to be utterly amazed at these crises, but we've known that yeah. we don't, we're not building enough houses for years, and then right. we have vast quantities of people coming in. Because so, we were encouraged never to notice. We were encouraged mm. to go, eh, it's not a problem, you know. Or, or no diversity is our oh, But it was wrong to say that it was a problem, yeah. that we have lots of people arriving. But you know what's, when you're I not think allowed to what's, say it. what's the most jarring is the sort of the salary range, because obviously to be on a work visa, you need to um, be on £26,000 a year. And we keep hearing these are but that's know, also these BS, highly yeah. skilled people that yeah. we need, some of which include florists, I kid you not. And the argument to florists. actually... Yeah, seriously. Right. The argument to actually raise the salary threshold to £40,000, which apparently is some sort of measure. I mean, it makes sense. If you're a highly skilled, highly valued worker, you should be more on a, a, more on a graduate, more than on a graduate salary. I think so it's an entry level graduate. There salary. are certain industries that just won't be able to afford it for, for whatever right. reason. And, but why, why, you know, why aren't we training more people in this country? Well, exactly. Yeah, why don't we raise the, the salaries of, of the jobs that we need, right. like carers oh, and we, nurses? Also, we discovered so on this show this well, there is a government website which tells employers that if they hire people from overseas, they can pay them 80% of the going rate. And so, of course, they're going to do that because it's cheaper. So they don't want to pay, um, you know, homegrown employees because they have to pay them and more the, money. And the turnover rate is less, obviously, because those people depend on those jobs to remain in the country. So yeah. they, don't, they, they don't change jobs as often because they don't have that option. I mean, there's so many reasons But if you're a young British person in this country, what's the incentive to go into right. the health service or to go into health and social care or look after old people or look yeah. after young children? What's the incentive when you're being paid chicken feed? Mm. Well, I mean, it's not necessarily chicken feed. It depends on what you're comparing it to, I suppose. And if people are coming here no. to make more money than where they would be, Make, yeah. where they, what they've been making, where, where they come from, then they are going to come. But if you talk about homegrown people, what's the incentive? You're right. Why, why they, should they do a they job where they're get, being paid £10 an hour? Yeah, because they will also be able to get benefits, which will be worth more. Which will be worth yeah. more. And that's so the problem as well. I think one area they're trying to crack down on, or they're certainly looking at, is the dependence. Mm. So if you are trying to encourage people from overseas, they may want to bring their families they over. Their, 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 their well, children. they can't. Sorry. If you, the trouble is, if you can't be, right, you know, have homegrown people yeah. doing those jobs, you're not attracting the overseas workers because they're, yeah. they're not allowed to bring their families. You're completely... Smart. I went to work in America when I was 23, right? They didn't say, if you've got any family members you want to bring with you. Exactly. No. It was like, you know, I went and got a visa, went and worked there, paid tax there, and had a very nice time. But they, I didn't, at any point... 
You have your auntie from Glasgow. You want to bring, you know, bring her over? Maybe I mean, cousins, the, maybe? The argument that these people, because they have to pay for the NHS um, when they come, so they're not actually a burden on uh, you know, public services. Well, that's obviously not true. Because the thing is, they're not, they're paying, their, their contribution doesn't just cover emergency um, services, which I think it should. You know, that also covers the, them seeing GPs. Our schools are not accommodating this huge influx yeah. of people coming in. Housing, where are they going to stay? I mean, British people can't even find housing. No. Where are these people supposed to find housing? Well, somebody made a very good point on a, a phone in show I was listening to earlier on today. Um, you know, if these people are all making decent money, i.e. 40 grand plus, why are they all living in social housing? Yeah. Who's giving them that social housing, uh, which inevitably stops people who are already here on the list yeah. from getting it? You can't, you know, they're kind of it both ways. They can't say, oh no, they're only, they're only, these people are only coming in because they're senior and they're skilled and they're earn, earning large amounts of money. Obviously not true. I think you've also got the mixed signal, which you had Rishi Sunak at the Global Investment Summit uh, on Monday. Um, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Ta talking yeah, about another, another one. one. <laughs> <laughs> How he wants the, you know, the brightest and the best to come to this country, and we, and we do, but we kind of need a cross section. Yeah. A, a cross, you know, to do you know why you forgot section. about it? Because he was standing against the blue backdrop, yeah. wearing a blue suit, a blue tie, and I literally was watching it, thinking, "This, I have watched this yeah. seventy-three times over the last." The only thing, three weeks. I, the only thing I remember about it, when the they sort of zoomed out, there was loads of lights, mm. which looked more like they had more lights than you two at the Spear. <laughs> you were like, "What have you got all these lights for?" Because the guy's standing so at a lectern. You know, what are you doing, some laser show or something? Maybe they should try that. Maybe it was but, part of the sustainable yeah, aviation flight. Unbelievable. Yeah. Now, we're going to take a quick look at some of the front pages. Some of them have got some quite serious stuff on them. A lot of royal stories as well. But just before we move on, I want to mention to you this one thing. Because I was once in Mexico on a holiday, and I took a boat trip. And the boat was definitely powered by a chip pan fat. Oh, my God. Because it stank. <laughs> and it literally stank. Why? It stank like a fish and chip shop. And I'm going from Cancun to the Isle of Mujeres, which is the island of women. This didn't turn out to be what I thought it was at all. And, um, anyway, it stank. The place they so if I'm on a plane that smells like that, you know, it's not going to be good. Anyway, I'm listen, really um, worried for you on Friday. You should, yeah. You're watching the Independent Republic, Mike Graham. Don't you dare go anywhere because I'll be back with these beautiful people here uh, with tomorrow's news story. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The panel are still here. So let's have a look uh, at some of the stories on the front pages. And we'll start with The Sun, guys. Terrible, terrible story that's happened as a result of, of course, the, 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 the freeing of various hostages, many children. Um, this one everyone will be familiar with. It's Emily Hand, whose father, Tom, appeared on all sorts of television stations, uh, including ours, talking about how he thought at first his daughter was dead. Um, and he was glad that she was dead because he didn't want us to have to go through the terrible trauma of being held hostage by Hamas in an underground sort of tunnel. Um, she came home in the last few days, but apparently she's barely able to speak. And you can't imagine the horror of this. I mean, you're a mother. Oh. Uh, I'm a parent. Um, her father said she was a happy, noisy kid. Now she just whispers. She's been terrorized by terrorists in hell. But as her dad, it's my job to make it better, and I will. I mean, how awful. And I think Ryan has a, has a daughter Two, at the yeah. same age. You, you've got two girls. She's nine years old. My youngest is nine. And you, you, it's just awful, isn't it? It is. And the sort of recovery that she'll have to go through mm -hmm. will just be incredible. I don't know how, you know, she needs to have therapy. Well, I mean, I've been talk, talking about talk this, everything through. Yeah, to my own kids all this weekend. I mean, I don't, I'm, I don't know what you would say to your children. No, you know. and, it, and it wasn't a few days. It, it went quickly like because we were days. all busy. Yeah. But Se yeah, exactly. Seven weeks. Yeah. Nearly seven weeks, mm. I think. Uh, and the stories that are coming out now from the hostages that are being freed yeah. are really making this 
whole this whole situation yeah. very very vivid, aren't yes. they? Because it, the thing it, I find it's not just about numbers now; no. it's about what people actually went right. through and how it's they were also, living. It's also not food running out and, and the cold and the yeah. isolation. And Esther as well. People in this country, people in our media, mm -hmm. um, sort of more or less saying, "Oh well, it wasn't that bad," because you know they were waving at them at the end and. You know, uh, they all look as if they've been pretty well looked after. I mean, I find it extraordinary that there are people mm. in this business who think like that. I, I, find, I find it genuinely, I'm rarely speechless. I, I'm, those are the kinds of moments that make me speechless. I mean, there was one hostess that was released. I think she wasn't part of the first wave of hostages. And that she said, and this was all over American media. She was like, oh, you know, they, they treated me well. Right. And then it was revealed she had to say that because her husband was also of a course. hostage of yeah. Hamas. Right. And I just think you cannot, you cannot be that moronic. No. Right. If seeing the scenes of like, the carnage that's going on in Gaza, do you really think these people are not under horrific conditions? No. How could you possibly even try and justify it by saying, oh, at least, you know, they came out unscathed? They're traumatized. They're basically saying they came out with all their limbs intact. They didn't, you know, visibly torture them on camera. Well, that is not. Well, the standard is, is they weren't pulled up from under rubble. So it, you should be exactly. That they the fact that they are now moving a 10 month old baby around effectively as a kind of human Porn, a yeah. human shield around. Yeah, and nobody knows. Passing where, them onto other terrorist groups. He's been there. Absolutely. He was nine amazing. months old when they took him. He's now ten months old. So for a tenth of his life, he's mm -hmm. literally been held hostage in the dark. Today, Dominic Waghorn, who is the sort of uh, international editor, I think, of Sky TV, sent this out. Hamas leader Yaya Sinwar met with the Israeli hostages a day after they were taken in tunnels under Gaza and told them they would not be harmed and would be returned as part of a hostage deal kind of undermines the Israeli Hamas equals ISIS storyline. And he has been slammed on uh, social yeah, media. Yeah, that's for this appalling. Because he is literally believing the leader of Hamas as a good guy, having gone in to talk to the hostages after watching their relatives and parents sometimes and children being murdered, raped, chopped up. And Sky TV think these guys are okay. But imagine seeing the brutality of some of those scenes, not knowing what's happened to the other people that you were with, your family, the people you love, yeah. and then going into that situation. So, so well, how about a little four-year-old girl who was released who didn't know she was an orphan? I mean, you know, I, the thing is, I think the, the reason why you get the these things they've seen coming out of, of like Sky correspondence and stuff like that is because we, we, we don't have any basis, any standards that we can all agree upon, right? If you can't have the national broadcaster saying, agreeing that Hamas are terrorists, we, we're not really talking from the same starting point. I mean, there should be some base thing that we all agree to before we have any discussion about what's going on yeah. in Israel and Gaza. And I think that because we don't have that, this is when you can say, actually, Hamas are not like ISIS because, you know, they spoke to the, the hostages like they were on a holiday. Yeah. And there's one young boy, I think he had his third or fourth birthday. Yeah. Uh, his whole memory yeah, will be just, scarred. Of course it will. It's unbelievable. It's too depressing to talk about. We've, we've got other stories to do. Uh, funnily enough, just as we were talking about foreign visas, some, uh, front page of the Times, their main story, calls to close visa route for cheaper foreign staff. This is exactly what we were talking about. Uh, Sunak under pressure, Brian, um, despite the fact that it could harm uh, the GDP and it could harm uh, the economy and fuel inflation. Yeah, this, this is the, uh, the, the the Migration Advisory Committee. They've come up with they they come up with a list of um, dozens of jobs across all sorts of industries, and uh, they're, they're thinking of basically uh, tr trying to get get rid of those uh, get rid of those cheaper foreign staff, and yeah. not, not not having them here. So, but the the big problem is you've had 
net migration over the last two years of 1.2, 1.3 million. It's, you know, it's, it's kind yeah. of got out, out of And one of the yeah. things we hear all the time about people who come here on the small boats is that, oh, well, they're allowed to come here because they've got family members here. Well, of course they have, because the family members have been already in situ, and nobody frankly knows if they've got family members here, but they just get waved in and go, all right, fine, I've got a family member losing loot, and off you go. Yeah, and, and what the Times is, is pointing out here is that these ludicrous shortage lists, they've got things like dancers yeah. and graphic designers mm, yeah. and arts officers on their shortage list. Yeah. No, our critical shortage list presumably is in sort of healthcare and you would think. in the health sector and yeah. things like that. Right. But, but, but who, what, care whoever homes. said, I mean, the care homes, whoever said right. we had a shortage of graphic designers or ballet dancers. Right. I also, mean, listen, there's not really too many arts officers. I would deport all arts <laughs> yeah. officers all immediately. Of them. Absolutely. Just leave the country. What are you doing? I mean, yeah. this, <laughs> this myth that if you sort of cut migration, you'll tank our GDP is ridiculous because we understand why big business likes mass migration. It has a downward pressure on, on wages and it, it must, our economy as something that's you know productive and dynamic when really we're just being fueled by cheap labor right. and so this the argument here that we actually need these people for, for gdp figures well, we need to start treating gdp figures like the vanity yeah. metrics that they are because it's not actually reflecting no. the, the quality of life of people of people in this country this is a low-wage economy right. and having our doors open is not helping the situation and given the way that some of these multinationals operate and the way that some of the big british corporations run themselves i mean half of them don't know what they're doing they're almost as bad as the public sector i don't know why we're trying to please them and let them get away with hiring people for less money you know when did you know they suddenly become the bosses of everything um just on the subject of rishi sunak not knowing where his priorities lie uh, <laughs> the telegraph has got a great one sunak to force public consultations on tree felling in new green drive which i presume means you won't be able to chop down any trees because it's bad for the environment you, you can fuel um i mean he's what is it staff? you can use it for staff fuel can't you uh, well, I mean, no, no, you can actually burn wood. You know, the, yeah, exactly. you, some of these environmentalists, you know, if you cut down trees, you'll be warm all winter. Well, and you won't even have to get a new electricity bill going And this up. is the head of his um, appearance at COP28. Of course, that's the this climate change conference. Yeah, it's in Dubai, 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 isn't it? Yeah. I'm going. Yeah. Are you? I'm going, yeah, I'll be there Fantastic. on Friday. So. Well, you, oh, you're not going to be there on Thursday night? Oh, well, you must, you, no. if, you're there, you, if you're there Thursday night, we need we're, to we're flying Thursday night. Oh, okay. oh, you're flying? You're not taking a, a canoe? Hopefully, no, like, no, like no. Hopefully not. So you're all fan. on your private jets, fueled by chip fat, flying off to Dubai yeah. to fix the planet? I mean, life is good at this I'm time. the I'm only non-hypocrite here. Not quite. You know what? I'm the chip fat thing. I've just had to imagine. Can you imagine how much that would smell in neighbourhoods as well? Oh, that's my playing Yeah. I can tell because of the when they get when they come in and they have to do the emergency landing, it's a dump all the fuel. Yeah, exactly. This is what they do. I mean, you'll be just covered in this horrible vegetable oil. Smell, yeah. Oh, um, we better talk about, uh, as I call him, odious Scobie. Um, <laughs> uh, that's front page of the Daily Mail. Scobie book called for naming royal racists by mistake. I find it hard to believe that anything that anything. these people do by is mistake. by mistake. Anything that Omar Scobie says. Thing is, he, I, think, I think we were talking about this. It, it, the wrong version of, of the copy. Yeah, nobody Scobie. knows how this has happened. But the right? thing is, I, I, I don't understand all the fuss about this, this guy's book because there's nothing new that's being revealed and he's so heavily surgically enhanced. I'm like, I don't trust anyone who doesn't recognise their own face. So I don't no. know why we're treating what he's saying like God. I don't think he was born with any of that face. Uh, he wasn't, he absolutely was not. And no. the thing is, he's not book. revealed his sources. Uh, he makes Harry and Meghan seem like saints in his book yeah. uh, somehow we're supposed to feel more sorry for them because apparently there wasn't one royal racist but two ah. who questioned the skin color of Meghan and Harry's Easy kids and, and I just thought imagine if Meghan had married a black man she would have collapsed because yeah. black families are notorious for questioning the skin color of you know right. future kids and grandkids if you have a kid with someone who's not of your race but by her own admission pretty much she didn't really know any black people 
until she got, came she's, to Britain. She's mixed race. So her, certainly her mother's side of the family would have questioned what she would look like when she came out. And yeah. I'm like, are they, you know, raging racist? I find this whole thing so bizarre. So in in non in in white families, people say, I wonder if they'll have your dad's eyes. I wonder if, yeah. you know, I mean, people well, talk what about, hair? well, you know, are you going to be a ginger, ginger like your brother yeah, or, ginger. you know, like, I, I, listen, I, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I, I always thought she was Puerto Rican. Yeah. So I used to watch this and I was like, who is this sexy Puerto Rican lady? And now it turns out she's 66% Nigerian. Right. <laughs> this oh, is hilarious to me. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Mind, she'll say that. I mean, who knows? I mean, if you do the DNA test, I mean, you never know where you come from, really, do you? On this, I think the onus is on Prince Harry now. I think it's yeah. now for him to basically yeah. advise us to denounce this yeah. and distance themselves right. from this Yeah, because book. he's making out, he's making out that he hasn't talked to them for this book. Well, no, right? but he wants he's it both ways. No, no, he's selling the whole premise of this book as yeah. being Meghan's mouthpiece. Yeah. That's what he is. He's very close to the Sussexes. We right. know that. Well, that's what I he's saying. In the and yet at the same time, he's... Yeah, he's in America at the moment doing this. He's also he knows. saying this isn't sources from them, this yeah. is friends very, very yeah. close to them around them. Yeah, of course. So he wants it both Yeah, we're ways. not buying it. I mean, you know, he's he's been doing Good Morning America he's because ah, America is a market. Easy, yeah, he'll he'll easy, make yeah. money there because they'll buy the book and they'll make money again. everywhere because world so stuff horrible. sells. But there's nothing new in this. It's no. literally finding freedom. Yep. And it's not even true. Freedom it's not again. even true. He said uh, Queen Camilla had phone calls with right. Piers Morgan. And, and Piers, Piers Morgan has denied it. I've never had a phone right. call with Queen Camilla. Exactly. And also this idea that, you know, somehow this racism row has ruined their relationship, yeah. where Harry didn't even mention it in his book. No. Because he knew that he had brought, he, what I think, here's what I think happened. He came out of some chat with his, with his dad or his mother or some other member of the family, came back to her, and she said, how did it go? And he said, oh, it was really awful, darling, you know, because they asked me about, you know, the colour of the child. And, and, like, trying to sort of suck up to her. And then suddenly they said it on Oprah. And when she said it on Oprah, he looked shocked. Like she'd repeated yeah. it. You know, he looked like he really didn't want her to do that. And that's why he never mentioned it again. Mm. Because he can't prove it. Because it wasn't true. But the thing is, I think I think that they were generally acting in bad faith. Because I don't know how you can get offended by that when you were an interracial couple. When, well, when you're Harry and Meghan, you can get offended, offended by, by anything. But this is, this is, I find it strange and bizarre. And I think it's a good thing she didn't marry a Nigerian man. Because she well, would be well, in the shock of her life. <laughs> I wonder whether they tried to make amends the other week with Prince Charles's um, birthday by yeah. making that phone call. And this is just sent every yeah. 10 seconds. I don't back. even believe the story about the phone call. I don't, even I don't believe the story about the phone call. Also, you don't have a private phone call and then leak it to the press. I mean, that's, that's the other problem. But they leaked bizarre. it before. Yeah. Yeah. The phone call. Yeah. Yeah. Private communication. You can't believe Go to a Hallmark word. Go and buy a nice private birthday card and privately send it to yeah. a private post. Yes. Full stop. Yeah. Then yeah. they have a special royal post. You don't have... No, not no, even. Really? Not even a courtier. And then on the front page of the Telegraph and the Times... A picture of, oh sorry, not the Times, um, a picture of the new version of the crown, which is the young Kate Middleton, a famous picture of her when she was modelling clothes up at Edinburgh University, which I think is where she first attracted the attention, it says. Caught his William. eyes. Caught his eyes. But on the front yeah. of the sun, um, you've got Kate in the actual yeah. and then you've got the, yeah, then you've got the actress. It feels like like the the 2023 BBL version. Yeah, exactly. You know, like because you know, like plumped up lips. Yes. Yeah. And like um. Yeah, Instagram. Comically version. proportioned derriere yes. a la Kardashian. Whereas I'm Kate sure. just looks like a bit of a student wearing a seat. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, which, 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 which was the point. Yeah, I mean, this, this literally looks like the um, a Fashion Nova version at the top. Absolutely. <laughs> the mirror's gone with book names, Royal Racist as well, but, but your story, the one you want to mention, Kate, uh, sorry, um, as I'm looking at Kate, uh, Emma, the great Elgin Marbles debate. Our writers give their verdict. It's the Daily Mirror. The Daily Mirror's readers do not give a stuff about right. Elgin Marbles. 99% of the people of this country, I haven't done this poll, but I'm just yeah. claiming it, 99% of the people 
don't know what the Elgin marbles are. Like, could not tell no. you. Yeah. What haven't they seen like. them. Are they a bit of a freeze and a bit of a scotch? Because yeah. I'm still not clear. Well, when but you say marbles, marbles to most people in Britain, they think of the things that you play yes. the game yeah, marbles exactly. with. They are not marbles. And I just think, give them back. Just give them back. It's 2023. You can't go around the world taking... Hang on a minute. No, 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 you see, you see, you see now you've gone too far. Yeah, exactly. No, 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 I know I have to yeah. do in this independent because, public. Because no, give them back. Point? What's in the, the point book? of having it in the British Museum, then? Why don't you just give right? it all back? Okay, half the stuff in the British Museum has been stolen anyway Good. by people that work nah, there and George Osborne. Oh, yeah, that's true. Sorry, I didn't But that's the stuff that never actually got... Yeah, it wasn't stolen by George Osborne. It's all been cast off He is now in charge of it, isn't he? Yes, he is in charge now. There's loads of stuff in the vault. In fact, about. 50%, 70% of the stuff in the vault that we never even display. Give all the foreign stuff back to the countries where it but belongs. But there won't be anything left. No, exactly. There'll be loads left. There'll no, there won't. Well, okay. I'll tell you what, the Egyptian section's going to look a bit barren. It will look a bit. <laughs> you know, it will look a bit. What all the mummies that we well, gave all back? Exactly. Get British artists to paint some stuff. Absolutely. No. No, here's the thing. Here's no. Absolutely not. Bad. You know what? No. Mrs. Janak was right to cancel this meeting. I actually, oh, one of the, no, no, and I'll tell you wasn't. why. I'll tell you why. Because at, at, at a time where... Beware of Greeks very Illegal migration. Illegal migration is sky high and they're real problems. For you to use this meeting to try and just harp on yeah. about these marbles no one knows anything no. about and when there are real emergencies going on i actually think it would have been a waste of rishi sunak's time to sit there and be like well, actually, you know, actually, you think, actually you know, actually, you know what that's the first sensible thing i've heard anyone say about this exactly. story today. Yeah, because because he would have he would have been slated right mm -hmm. wouldn't he what for meeting the greek pm yeah. a little bit but the, this this talk about the the marbles would have been taken off that to a minute exactly yeah. exactly yeah. Minutes, so no and every, Instead of which, every, every, time every headline now says Rishi's yeah. off his mouth. Every time the, uh, the Greek Prime Minister, whoever comes over, there's this big charade right. and they move on very quickly. Right. Instead, we haven't spoken about migration issue with right. Greece, the red NATO ally, right. EU friend, all, all the things this that we yeah. need to discuss with Bush. Yeah. With well, well, listen, next time when he stops talking about the chip flying plane. Exactly. You know, he's doing something far do more important, which is filming weird videos weird going video. like, whoa. And basically, we've, we've run the time, incredibly. That's all for me tonight. You've been watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you to all of my guests, Ryan, Esther and Emma. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow at 9 o'clock, only right here on Talk TV.